Hello and welcome to Mountain Meister. It's the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank. My guest today is Dr. Jared Vagey, who's also known as the climbing doctor. He's treated the injuries of and taught more than 1,000 climbers. And he's the author of a book called Climb Injury Free. It gives step-by-step rehabilitation instructions for climbing injuries. Today, we'll talk about common climbing injuries, how to know when to push it hard or when to back it off, and the difference between pain and injury. I talked to um, you know a couple prominent surgeons and some of the numbers that they throw around is over 70% of rock climbers have what's called labral tears or tears in the cartilage in their shoulder. But plenty of them are walking around cranking hard with zero pain. After my interview with Jared is our company spotlight segment with a brand called Thunderbolt Sportswear. They're out of Portland, Oregon. Their flagship product is this pair of pants that's kind of a hybrid between jeans and soft shell pants. I'll speak with one of their owners, John Connor, about what makes them so special. And then after that, roommate Max and I will tell you what we think. Mountain Meister is supported by Health IQ. It's a company that uses science and data to help health conscious people like runners, climbers, and weightlifters get lower rates on their life insurance. By working hard for your health, you can save money along the way. Go see if you qualify today with a free quote at healthiq.com slash Meister and use that link so they know that I sent you. My guest today is Jared Vagey, who's a doctor of physical therapy and known as the climbing doctor. He's a professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at University of Southern California and works with Olympic athletes on teams in both the U.S. and China and has treated and taught more than 1,000 climbers. He's the author of Climb Injury Free, which includes injury advice from professional climbers as well as step-by-step rehabilitation instructions for your climbing injuries. Dr. Jared Vagey, welcome to Mountain Meister. Hello, how are you doing, Ben? Doing great. I'm wondering, what are some common injuries among climbers? Well, you really have to think about the categories of climber. Let's maybe put in a, an alpine climber mm-hmm. as, as one and a rock climber, because these are two completely different categories of different injuries that you would see. So maybe let's start with alpine, like an, alp, an alpinist. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you think would be a common injury for an alpinist? Fro- like most frostbite. common. Frostbite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Frostbite. Check. <laughs> Unfortunately, that is outside of my expertise. Okay. But um, yeah, all right. In addition to frostbite, um, what are you thinking would be a common injury? Uh, upper or lower body you think would be most common? Hmm. I guess I would say uh, compared to the rock climber, I would say lower body. Yeah, so mostly with the alpinists, and it depends on what, you know, what type of level of alpinist, what style. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the ones that I see were typically dealing with lower body injuries. And most of them are actually knee injuries. And they're not necessarily traumatic. They're more overuse from the wear and tear on the trail mm-hmm. or wear and tear of, of ice climbing or, or climbing on snow. And, and just even the approach of just getting to the, the base of the route. So kind of if, if your audience is listening right now, and even if you want to try this, I want to show a, a reason why the knee is the most affected. And if you think about it in the lower body, you have your hip, which is a, a joint right at your waist. You have your knee below that, and you have your foot and your ankle. So do you have any guesses, Ben, of maybe why the knee would take the most impact for alpinists? It's in the middle. It's in the middle. Yeah, exactly. So if you, like, whoever's listening to this now and Maybe not if you're driving, but if you're if you're standing somewhere stationary, and maybe not if you're climbing either. Uh, but if you're on solid ground, is if you just squat down, maybe like a three quarter squat, and just get into a you know a little bit of a a semi squat position, mm-hmm. and just move your ankle back and forth. So put the weight on the inside of your ankle and then put the weight on the outside of your ankle. And even if you're at a desk job right now and you're bored and killing time and you're listening to this, do this right now. And what you'll notice is as you move the weight from the inside to the outside of your ankle, your knee is typically going to move as well. Right. So as you exactly. So as you move that ankle in and out, your knee is going to go in and out with it. And now look at your hip and move your your hip or your your thigh, your thigh bone in and out. 
and you move that thigh bone in and out and guess what your knee goes with it uh-huh. so so the knee's really just a dumb joint and just like you said it's it's in the middle it's stuck in the middle of the ankle and the hip and whatever happens at the ankle and the hip the knee just goes with it and if you think about yeah so if you think of alpinists in this constant uh, the approach or just even even just hiking on snow whatever your foot ankle or hip does then your knee is going to travel with it. And that's going to take some load over time and especially descents, especially just, you know, hiking downhill, heavy packs, 50, 60 pound packs is going to put a lot of pressure then on the knee joint. So that's a common injury that I'll see with alpinists. And a lot of it is really an overuse issue. Mm -hmm. And the, the way to address it is to actually where I start is address the foot and ankle. And then we get into the knee after that. So the the knee, just to recap, the knee's doing twice as much work as the ankle or the hip does. Yeah, for example, you're, if you put all the weight on the inside of your foot and you put your thigh bone inwards, then your knee's going to track inwards and that stress is going to then transfer not from your hip and your ankle, but it's going to tra- transfer what's in the middle, which mm-hmm. is going to be the, the knee. If you almost imagine you take a stick and you bend that stick on each end, well, it may break at its weakest link or weakest point, which may be in the center. What about uh, injuries for the rock climbers? I'm assuming those are more upper body injuries. Yeah, so for rock climbers, I'll get a foot, ankle, a knee injury, a hip injury every now and then. And usually the the ankle injuries are from boulderers, which are traumatic and they'll fall. Mm. And uh, hip injuries from if they're doing too many high steps or they have some stiffness in that area. And knee injuries, if they were working some crazy problem with radical drop knees where they had to just time in and time out do like a really high step in a dropped knee. But if you think about it in climbing, the stress isn't very much into the legs. I mean, your your legs work hard to balance and to stabilize, but a lot of the stress goes into your fingers. And your hand is the connection to the rock wall is where the challenge becomes. And then you go down the chain into the wrist, into the elbow, into the shoulder. And with most climbers, the majority of injuries, the percentage, 40% of the injuries in rock climbing are developed in the wrist, hand, and fingers. Wow. So that's a pretty large percentage in the wrist, hand, and fingers. And then the other percent that I see or the other uh, high level of injuries is in the shoulder. And it's in that that foundation. So it's actually a lot different because you would think uh, when climbing, well, you're all right, we have this analogy that whatever's in the middle takes a lot of stress. So you'd say, all right, well, the elbow is in the middle of the the fingers and the shoulder, which is common. Climbers do get get elbow injuries, but the most injuries that I see is actually in the fingers, uh, wrist and hand and the shoulder. Now, is that because uh, of something with uh, dealing with climbing form? So when we're putting long days in the mountains, alpine climbing, you, you expect your knee joint to to move, where I guess when you're uh, climbing isn't part of the uh, movement to like straighten that elbow and buy, maybe okay. bypass the elbow. You got it. Yeah. So if you're climbing with proper technique and let's say you're on an overhung route, so you're, you're climbing and it's a really steep route, it starts to get overhung. Now, if you start climbing that overhung route with bent elbows and, you know, you're not hanging on your skeleton, well, of course, now that's you're going to start to wear and tear your biceps and start to get some, you know, some inside arm or, or elbow pain. Uh, but we're smart creatures and we're going to do what's most efficient for us. And if you straighten those elbows, you know, engage your shoulder blades a little bit, then you can climb that route more efficiently. And, and then the stress doesn't go as much into the elbow. And, and the thing to think about, too, is the elbow, although it is affected a lot with climbers, it's affected a lot differently than the knee with alpinists. The reason climbers get a lot of elbow injuries is a lot of times because of the wrist position when they climb. So if you think about this, if you're going to climb a route that has a lot of slopers, and so slopers are going to be where your your wrist is flexed forward and you're almost palming a hold, Mm -hmm. which part of your arm do you think you'd develop the most stress? Almost like look down at your arm and, and do almost like a cobra grip, like you do a sloper. And if you trace that muscle down from your wrist that goes and it inserts into the inside of your elbow. Mm-hmm. I got you. So if, a, so if a climber's using a lot of slopers, well, they may start developing some inside elbow pain. 
But that's usually if that's a route that they do a lot of or a technique they use a lot of. Mm -hmm. Or if you're over gripping. That's the other thing that leads to a lot of inside elbow pain. If you grip too hard on holds, then you start to overuse those flexors. And so what you said earlier reminded me of why the rest step is important in alpinism because it puts uh, more pressure on the skeletal system. Absolutely. Yeah. And so then that way that you, you put the pressure in your skeletal system, your, your muscles, your tendons get a little bit of a chance to, to relax. And the rest step over time, though, it can cause some you know, strain to the back of the knee. Hmm. But in regards, in regards of efficiency, it does definitely improve your ability to, you know, to, to improve your efficiency while hiking or while alpine climbing. Hearing you describe rock climbing makes it sound like such an unnatural sport. Whereas like when we hear about runners saying that running is such a, so natural to the human body, rock climbing, putting all this pressure on our hands seems so unnatural. Well, think about this. So we go about like our everyday lives and our legs are almost always straight, right? We're standing. Well, I guess if you're sitting for a job in your yeah. job, that's a little bit different, but let's say we're walking and anywhere you're walking, your legs are almost always straight. And then your arms, your arms are typically bent, right? And you're grabbing for things, moving them back and forth. Well, well rock climbing is the opposite. Mm-hmm. You want to sit the weight down into your legs and keep your arms a little bit straighter, especially with, with more overhang routes, so that the weight transfers into your legs. So it's almost the opposite of, of what homo sapiens are, are used to doing. Now, maybe that everyone now has a desk job or is a student, well, maybe things are changing and we're, we're used to our, our hips always being bent. But, um, but yeah, climbing is, you could say that it's, it's unnatural as far as how, you know, how most people interact today. But I mean, all of us are climbers. I'm, I'm hoping that are listening to this. And the second that we jump on the rock wall, that's probably the most natural thing I've ever done in my life. So it's, um, I think there's, there's components of, of climbing that you, you have to almost rewire your brain to do movements efficiently, mm-hmm. but there's also co- components of it that are, that are basic to, to human beings. What injuries have you had? So I got actually into climbing through injuries. So I, I ran track in college and I pulled my hamstring muscle uh, six or seven times, which is terrible, terrible injury to have. And there was a rock wall on campus. And so I actually started climbing uh, when, I, when I was in college on the rock wall. And I got psyched on climbing and I wanted to climb everything that there was. And, and I got through the process. I just kept climbing and, and training. And uh, I led up into graduate school when I was getting my doctorate in physical therapy. And I actually wasn't listening or paying attention to anything I was reading. And I was just doing my own thing. And I made a lot of training errors. And I overtrained, and I remember I was on this route in Joshua Tree. It was called Course and Buggy, but there's this exit move where I was in this really awkward position where my thumb was down and I was grabbing onto the rock, and I, I pulled a little bit too hard, and I felt a tear or a, almost like a discomfort in, in my rotator cuff, and and then I also felt in my in my pulley um, in the my ring finger a little bit of discomfort as well. And that was the start of, of, a, of a tough climbing injury. And like an idiot, I went back home and two days later, I was too cheap to buy a hangboard and they weren't as popular back then. So I went on the door frame of, you know, of, uh, I, was, I, I was living in Burbank at the time and I went on the door frame, put my fingertips on the you know, top of the door frame mm-hmm. And I was doing a bunch of pull-ups and I felt a, a pop in my finger. And so I ended up, I, I sprained my, my pulley ligament in my, in my finger and I tore my rotator cuff. So those were some early injuries that I probably should have avoided uh, if I had known some of the proper ways to prevent them. But, but you were studying physical therapy at this point? Yeah, it's a little bit ironic. Yeah, right? well, like why so, did you, uh, it sounds like why were you ignoring what you were learning in physical therapy? I think I was just so motivated to climb and push myself at my ability mm-hmm. that I, I didn't really pay attention to common sense what to do. And that was actually is probably one of the best things uh, in my life for climbing because it was really a wake up call. And at that time, there wasn't a ton of information out on preventing climbing injuries. 
And so I used myself as a guinea pig and used myself in this example. And I actually started writing articles for magazines. So Deadpoint Magazine, uh, Climbing Magazine, uh, Climb Magazine in the UK. And I started writing articles on biomechanics and how you can put yourself in positions to decrease stress on your body and ways that you can prevent injuries from happening. And my own injuries were actually what led to a lot of what I'm doing now, which is spreading this injury prevention information to rock climbers because I knew what to do. I just never really took action and did it to prevent the injury. I've always wondered this. So you said you use yourself as a guinea pig, but how do you know that uh, this isn't just like sample size of one? It works for me, but not necessarily for everybody else. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's good, Ben, since since I know you're coming from the research perspective, you know, uh, sample size or N of one, this is anecdotal evidence, right? Mm-hmm. This is, you know, this is what works on you. Is it going to work on somebody else? And so the key to this is you got to base things or you need to base things off of research. And what I've done and what I started to do is all my articles and especially the early ones is I would compile all this research from different sports and then I would put it into the context of rock climbing. And I started developing an archive of movement patterns that led to stress on joints, which is biomechanics, Mm -hmm. and then combining that biomechanics with what the research is supporting. And these are larger scale research studies in different sports that have energy systems uh, that can compare to certain aspects of climbing. And so that's how some of the early work in climbing that I did developed. And then, you know, my sample size now is huge. So I'm able to work with tons of climbers. And as we had mentioned before, I've, you know, I've taught and worked with over, you know, over a thousand climbers. And so I have a, a good handle of of what works with climbers and, and what doesn't at this stage, but it wasn't always like that. And that was probably about a, you know, eight year process of, of figuring it all out. So I have this friend whose name is Glenn and it always seems like Glenn is getting injured. Uh, he's not somebody who complains about injuries. He's actually like somebody who is frequently getting injured. Um, he's in really good shape. This is a, this is a real person who was my roommate in college. Um, okay. I thought this was like a no, hypothetical. No, this is not, not, a, hypoth- like, not a hypothetical Glenn, Glenn kind of sounds <laughs> right. like Ben, right? <laughs> yeah, so. right, right? It could be me. No, no. Glenn is almost the opposite of me. Um, you'll see why in a minute. So Glenn has a very regimented schedule of going to the gym at least five times a week, once a day. Um, he does a little bit of cardio at the gym and then he lifts weights uh, he always is committing to good form on his exercises. He stretches beforehand. He cools down afterward. Like it, it seems like he does everything by the book yet. Glenn is always getting injured. We call him fragile Glenn actually. Um, whereas I don't have a regimented schedule going to the gym. I barely go to the gym. I do a lot of outside stuff. Uh, I very rarely stretch, never cool down. Uh, but I rarely get injured. So I wonder what's going on here. Like, am I or are some people uh, genetically prone to not getting or getting injuries? Uh, what's going on? Yeah, and you know, Ben, this is a complex question that, as a medical community, I'm not sure that we have a definitive answer. Hmm. But I can give you a background and why maybe. There are some people that you would think, you know, such as yourself, that if you were to put on paper, you'd say, oh, Ben is, is going to get hurt, you know, and, and if you put Glenn on paper, you say, oh, Glenn is, is living a healthy lifestyle. He's going to be fine. Why is there this contrast? This doesn't add up. Mm-hmm. Um, I can give you a theory on why pain and injury is sometimes tough to understand and rather complex. And then we can apply that theory to, to climbing. Okay. So, so I want you to imagine right now, so you're sitting in your home and whoever's listening to this podcast or wherever you are and two blocks away, there's a car and it's parked and you decide to turn on your, your boom box and you play a little, or I don't know, your iPad speakers, whatever, you know, and you play a little bit of Dr. Dre or whatever. And, and that, that bass or that bumping sets off the car alarm that's two blocks away. 
So I want you to just think of that as in okay. your mind. Yeah. All right. So you've got a car two blocks away, just playing some music on your computer sets off that car alarm. Hmm. And now I want you to imagine that there's a car right outside where you're listening to this podcast, you know, a couple feet away. And for that car to have its car alarm get set off, you can't play that, that boom box. You can play it at full blast. It's not going to go off. You have to actually punch through and break the window. And finally, if you break through that window, that car alarm is going to go off. Okay. So these are okay. two, mm-hmm. two analogies, right? Or two, two scenarios. And what that is, is it's, we're, we're talking about is the sensitivity of someone's nervous system. And I want you to hold that thought for a moment. So these two different cars. And when we talk about injury, typically injury is pain or discomfort, right? If we didn't have pain or discomfort, it probably wouldn't have an injury. So if you think about what an injury is, all it is, is a warning sign that is sent from the tissues in your body that goes through your nerves into your spinal cord up to your brain and your brain makes the interpretation whether it's dangerous or not. Mm-hmm. And if it's, if it's dangerous, then your brain says, this is pain, this is discomfort. So one theory that's out there is people that are chronically getting hurt. And these are people sometimes that are really into form and technique or really thinking about so much hmm. about their bodies hmm. is maybe they have a nervous system that may be a little hypersensitive. And maybe this tweak that they feel in their elbow to them, that tweak is this high level of pain and disability where to somebody else, and so they would be that car that's two blocks away with the, with the yeah. boom box on a low level setting it off, where for someone else, this discomfort or tension in the elbow is, is nothing at all. And, and the, the brain just forgets about it hmm. and, and says this is not a big deal. And, and that's the, a sim, very simplistic example. And I can tell you that if you then take the analogy further, they did studies with violinists. And if you prick a violinist's finger, their pain, disability, um, emotional, uh, you know, amounts of, you know, how upset they are and how much that affects their life is significantly more than if you prick anybody else's finger. Because there are so many pathways that are tied up into their well-being mm. uh, that are that are in the finger. So there are so many levels, and this is all in the brain, to why pain is perceived and why for some people they may perceive it more than the others. And it's quite complex, but those are two analogies that I, I think can paint the picture of saying, well, it's not always what's happening at the tissues. Maybe it's something that's happening a little bit deeper. So sometimes there's a distinction between pain and injury though. Uh, are we talking about pain here or pain and injuries? Yeah. So we're talking here first about pain, pain in itself. And pain is typically a precursor to injury and and pain is there for a reason. Right. You know, don't get me wrong. Pain is there to stop us from doing something stupid. You, you put your hand on a, on a burner, you immediately as a reflex pull it away you know, so you, so you don't get burned, right? Mm-hmm. So pain is quite complex. Injury uh, is typically comes after pain, but to really determine if there is tissue damage, you do have to take a biopsy or an image. And the thing that's gonna then throw a whole spin in this is there's plenty of research, and especially in the lower back, that just because there's damage to a tissue or an injury doesn't mean that someone's gonna have pain or should even worry about it. Hmm. Interesting. So with rock climbers, there's, I mean, I, I heard, I talked to, um, you know, a couple prominent surgeons and some of the numbers that they throw around is over 70% of rock climbers have what's called labral tears or tears in the cartilage in their shoulder. But plenty of them are walking around cranking hard with zero pain, right? <laughs> right. Uh-huh. So, so it's, um, it's quite complex uh, why someone may or may not have pain. Um, but what I believe in and what I could say is I'm a pretty firm believer in biomechanics. And let's say your friend was lifting weights and Glenn, right? Yes, Glenn. Let's say Glenn was lifting weights. And let's say instead of doing it in perfect form, he decides to just do terrible form all the time. Uh huh. There's probably a strong likelihood Glenn would be even more hurt than he is now if he if he does that. 
Uh, Will Bateman did a great article on um, this idea of centralized pain that we just talked about, these alarm systems mm-hmm. and, and finger injuries with rock climbers. Probably one of the best uh, articles on that I've written. So if anyone wants some some free content on that, um, on the blog, uh, Will has an article on that. Cool. I'll post the link on the show notes. Great, great. Um, I was wondering, so you talked about how the rock climber, something's hurting and you want to push uh, that last 10%, but maybe risking injury. And that kind of, uh, I, I guess it's seen as noble or respectful when people undergo these crazy projects and uh, push through adversity. And you yourself uh, have done some projects and you're a climber. Um, so how do you how do you talk to professional climbers about that that sort of balance of pushing yourself so hard yet risking further injury? Yeah, and specifically professionals? Uh, yeah, actually. Let's yeah. do professionals first and then we can move on to uh, advice for myself. <laughs> yeah, that's the most important part. Most <laughs> important part of this podcast. Right. <laughs> um, so for pro climbers, the biggest component, there is no way I'm going to tell a pro climber when they're given a burn at their, you know, on their project and they're trying to send, there's no way I'm going to tell them to go 50%. You know, if, if this is a project that they're, that they're really training for, right. Mm-hmm. And w- which a lot of pro climbers do. So the key comes down to readiness to climb and for them to know when the time is to push and know when it's not. And there's a couple things, a couple tools uh, that, that anyone can really use to determine their readiness to climb. But one of the things that I'll normally use, and they're super cheap, is a, a dynamometer, which is a, a gripping device that will digitally tell you, you know, how strong that you're gripping. Huh. And you can get these on Amazon for about 25 bucks. And a lot of the research on gripping shows that the angle of your fingers is quite important. Meaning if you gripped a grip and the angle's a lot different than the angle that your fingers need to be on the route, then it's not going to be as meaningful, the data. Okay. And so if you can use the gripping device in a particular position, and there's a way that you kind of rest it on your palm and get into what's called a half crimp grip, then you can start to simulate the positions that you would use on a rock climbing hold. Or you just take something um, like a grip stir, which is uh, some moldable material that uh, is set to certain grips that has a little hook on it that you can attach a carabiner. Uh, or you can use um, a flashboard or you know, even a hangboard or different devices um, and start to decide where you're at and you can actually hook those as well to a dynamometer so but anyway with with a lot of the climbers what i'll have them do it's a 25 dollar device i'll have them get into a half crimp position and for an entire week i have them crimp and determine they'll do three sets to maximal crimp and determine what their baseline is meaning how much pressure can they put into it and what's their average so let's say that their average is uh 120 pounds of force so now it's time for them to climb their project and they've been, you know, their two days, their, their second day on, you know, and, and testing their project. It's their seventh try of the day and they go and they, they test and they grip and they're now down to 70 pounds, right? Mm-hmm. So now they're in a suboptimal position for them to, to challenge themselves on their project. So then they have to make a decision. Well, physically they don't have the readiness to climb. So mentally, are they able to overcome that and, and go for it? No. So it's just more, are, more data. Are, there, are they tired? Is that why they're not reaching? Or is that why they're suboptimal? Well, they're, they're yeah, they're fatigued. Okay. And it may, it may not be a fatigue like, oh, my shoulders and arms are sore. It may be the, the tendons and muscles in the hand, the finger, and the wrist are, are just overused. Mm-hmm. And they just need some more time to recover. Gotcha. Um, so that's one method. Another method, which is quite interesting. I haven't done this as much just because it's a pain in the ass. Um, but it's uh, called joint position air testing. And you basically take a laser and you can get those, you know, really inexpensively, like two, three bucks, you know, like almost like a laser pen. Yeah, yeah. And you can put that on your your wrist or you can put that on your shoulder, like kind of almost around your, your biceps. Mm-hmm. And what you do is you close your eyes and you bring your arm. So imagine like you're standing, right? 
and bonus if you're squatting down in a climbing position. And you've got this laser that's, let's say it's right on your wrist. So it's right over your hand and your arms are straight out. Mm -hmm. And so what you do is you close your eyes and you lower your hand down and then you bring your hand back to the starting point and you measure how far off Hmm. you are from bringing your hand back and forth in that starting point. So what I do in the clinic with this is I take a, almost like a bullseye, a printed out bullseye, and I attach it to the wall. And you have someone squatting down, their wrists are straight, the laser is on their hand, it's right on the bullseye. They, with their eyes open, lower it down and lower it back just so they know that, okay, that laser is going down, going back to the center of the bullseye. Yeah. And then they close their eyes, lower down, go back, and they see if the laser's still on the center of the bullseye when they come back. And if it's way off and there's a whole, uh, they did this research on the neck, if I believe it's greater than like 4.5 degrees if it's off, uh, then you have decreased proprioception or ability to sense space at that joint. And potentially that may lead to a, an injury risk. So now, now can so, you get better at doing that task? It sounds like uh, if I did that multiple times, I'd get really good at knowing like what position my hand needs to be to hit that bullseye. Yeah, it's definitely a trained task. So then that's where you start to add additional variables and it actually becomes performance training. So then you start having them squatting down. They're then moving their wrist and, you know, in circles back and forth I while see. their other hand is like crimping. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> so you, you, so you start to, if you go into the clinic where, you know, when I'm working with climbers, you'll, you start to roll, you're like, what the hell is going on here? Um, but it's uh, yeah, it's all, all these different things that you can start to, to do for performance. If you look at analogies, like in basketball, uh, Steph Curry, who's a famous basketball player. Um, he does stuff like this all the time. He has these strobe glasses that he puts on and he's, if you look on YouTube type like Steph Curry strobe glasses, he's dribbling a basketball with glasses that then strobe at different sequences that will then he's then on the other hand, he's then juggling a a tennis ball and you're doing all these different choice reaction times actually to prevent injury and improve performance. So you can almost like pat your head and rub your stomach in a very sports specific way. Uh Uh-huh. How interesting. Uh, so I guess the, those were professionals. Yeah, and the joint air or the joint position air testing, yeah. I, I have not been successful at convincing many people to do that huh. unless they're in the clinic with me. Um, so, uh, but definitely uh, readiness to, to perform is, is, quite, is quite common for grip testing. What, sorry, why don't they do it outside of the clinic? Just because it's a weird thing to do? I think it's a weird thing to do. And what I've found is anything that takes extra effort, uh-huh. like if it's extra setup, if there's a laser, a target, a bunch of different bands in different positions, they're really good for clinic work. Um, but when you get outside the clinic in real life, we want the simplest, easiest thing to do that's going to give us the best results. Coming up, I talked to Jared about one of my own injuries. So if we dissect this and we kind of like... I'm not going to put you on the spot. No, no, put me Um, on the spot, um... please, please. But first, a few words from our sponsor, Health IQ. Some metrics that life insurance companies use to measure the health of an individual are dated or even inaccurate at times. For example, someone who is perfectly healthy may have a high BMI because of muscle mass. An insurer would typically view this as a bad sign and your life insurance rates would be more expensive. Now, Health IQ works with insurance carriers to get a more accurate measurement, maybe a waist to hip ratio or cholesterol calculations. This underwriting advantage is how Health IQ saves you money. See if you qualify today with a free quote at healthiq.com slash meister. Um, so anyway, for the, for the lay person like myself, and I guess I can use this uh, recent trip that I went on, uh, a friend and I, rode our bikes from San Francisco to LA. Um, and we wanted to do it in five days, which was about a hundred miles a day. And it turned out to be, uh, fighting for daylight most days. And, uh, by the third day, uh, my Achilles on my right leg was starting to really hurt. And then, uh, started popping some Advil and icing them at night. And then my left one started to hurt a lot too. 
it was like on day four where I was looking at like buses that I might need to take. Um, but I was like, nah, I'm going to push through this and like, who knows what will happen. Hopefully they recover. Uh, at this point they're kind of creaking. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Uh, but like (laughs) when I flex my ankle, it feels like the Achilles is either like crunching or creaking, uh, but the pain's going away. So I think it was just a lot of stress on them. But anyway, how should I know or how does one decide to push further and risk further injury? Yeah, well, let's kind of dissect that down a little bit, yeah. the, the, the scenario. So the first thing is is break down when you first started feeling this, because this is now we're going to talk about a warning sign, right? Okay, yeah. So I started feeling it uh, on the second day at like mile <laughs> 30 or so. Okay, so second day in. And how dialed is your is your bike as far as yeah. the setup and the um you know the seat positioning and everything? Right, right, exactly. So I noticed. So I had probably thirty pounds of gear on my bike, mm-hmm. um, and I noticed when I started feeling it that if I kept my heel down, uh, then the pain uh or there wasn't as much pain. So I assumed that my seat needed to be a little bit lower. So I lowered it, but not until the thir- the end of the third day. <laughs> yeah, right. So so if we dissect this and we kind of like, I'm not going to put you on the spot. No, here. no, put um, me on the spot, but, um, please, please. But I'm a, like I mentioned, I'm I, I did my fellowship training in, in biomechanics and movement science, and and if we're set up in the right position, we're we're going to last longer. We're going to be more efficient. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like potentially your workload had increased. You had more weight, you know, that you're pull, carrying than, mm-hmm. than normal, um, and then potentially your seat was a little higher than normal. Yeah, and 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 I'll nerd out on cycling for a moment, but. In cycling, your your ankle is flexed 120 to 135 degrees through the entire pedal stroke. Mm-hmm. So it only moves about 15 degrees, and that's not much motion. So while you're cycling, you're mostly pointing your toe down, and for all the, you know, for the majority of miles that, that you're traveling. This is if you're if you're road biking. Mm-hmm. And so if you're always pointing your toe down, well, what muscle do you think you're working? Uh, I guess my Achilles, right? Yeah, or your calf, or calf, muscle. calf. I guess yeah. the Achilles is a tendon. Yeah, yeah, yeah you got it. Right. So the calf, calf muscle, yeah. and then the calf muscle goes and inserts onto the Achilles, and okay. so that can cause some overuse or some overstress. And and the warning signs is kind of what you said. You start feeling some aching, some discomfort, and so you make a modification. And so one modification that you did is you lower the seat, which is great. Um, another, actually, if you slide the seat backwards just a bit, mm-hmm. uh, it actually puts the, some of the force into your buttock muscles, uh-huh. um, and out of, out of your quad and your, and your calf as well, um, is another option. Um, and then, uh, and then the key is what are you doing in between and, and what are you doing before? Uh, and what are you doing after? So are you, were you going straight through or were you, uh, were you taking any breaks? Uh, we would take, a break for breakfast at like 25 miles and then a break for like a snack uh when we were like 60 miles in and then uh would try to get to our campsite and eat dinner once it got dark so like two breaks and then one uh, and i was eating i mean eating a ton and sleeping a ton (laughs) god and what type of warm-up did you do before you got on the bike nothing okay i I packed our (laughs) i packed our tent and sleeping bags (laughs) All right, great. That's a good warm up. <laughs> I told right, you I don't so. do I don't do the warm ups or the cool downs. <laughs> yeah, but you also told me you don't get injured. I know. Is well, that... so I guess that, <laughs> as I'm talking to you about this, my Achilles is feeling better and better, and I'm wondering if it didn't burst, if I didn't like completely rupture my Achilles, could this actually be good for me down the road that I put so much stress on it but didn't uh, injure my Achilles? Uh. Potentially, but I'll give you an even better scenario. Mm-hmm. If you put so much stress on it and you had no discomfort. Okay. Okay. And potentially with a proper warm-up program, proper bike fitting and proper training prior, you know, to the ride, maybe you could have prevented that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what the research is for Achilles specifically, and they did a lot of research with runners, is what's called eccentric training. And eccentric training is basically you you go up on your tiptoes. 
And you said it was your right side that started bothering you first? Yeah, then left and now uh, about okay. equal. Okay. So you go up on your tiptoes, like both tiptoes, you're uh -huh. standing. And then you switch your weight over to your right side. You bend your left knee. So basically you're standing only on your right sided tiptoes. Mm -hmm. And then you lower down slowly. Okay. And, yeah, you, yeah. and that's called an eccentric exercise for your, your Achilles. And the research that they've done with that and the repetitions are actually really high and they, they started, the easier it gets, then you start taking a backpack and putting weights in the backpack and so forth. But that eccentric motion, the theory is that that starts to strengthen the tendon. And when you're cycling, you're almost consistently only pointing your toe. Your Achilles isn't lengthening very much. Right. Um, and so this training the Achilles tendon through this this uh, this range of motion in the research studies, what they've shown uh, that that's actually been able to prevent and actually rehabilitate some of the the Achilles injuries. So something that now you could do if you still have some discomfort is they're called eccentric uh, heel raises for the Achilles. And doing those, it's, it's a high load. So you do three sets of, of 15, and then you do that twice a day with your knee straight and knee bent. So if you do the math, that's 45, 90, 180 repetitions is what they use in the research study. Okay. Mm -hmm. So. Well, I, uh, yeah, hopefully that will <laughs> help. I th yeah, no, I think it's, it's recovering. Uh, I might, I might choose to stick to my routine of doing absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds like it's been working for you up until the bike rides. So. Well, until it doesn't, but <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think the challenge, so I'll, I'll plant the seed cause yeah. it's helpful sometimes to instill a little bit of fear. Yeah. Um, so, so Ben, how old are you, Ben? I'm 26. All right. 26. So just imagine if you have the proper patterns, you know, setting up when you're 26, when the body starts to go through some of those natural aging changes, when right. you get stiffer, less pliable, mm -hmm. if you if you set up some of those good habits early on, you may save yourself uh, later down the line. Good point. All right. Uh, that, that's that's my that's my pitch for injury prevention. Uh, tell us about the book, Climb Injury Free. So I'm psyched about the book. Um, like I had mentioned, I, I got into injuries, uh, or I got into rock climbing through injuries, and climbing is a huge part of my life, and and it's been really what shaped me, um, you know, who kind of who I am today. And I, I want to develop the book to to give back to the climbing community and to to have a resource that any climber could use and say, I have an injury in this location. And there's a diagram in the book with all the areas that you'd, you can get injuries and say, what's the step-by-step -step method of how to get rid of this injury, you know, with, with pictures and um, instructions that take you through it. There's even a video archive with uh, professional climbers that are way cooler than I am that you can watch doing exercises. And it was really a, a way that I could incorporate the professional climbing community um, as well into, into a resource that, that anyone could use to, to heal their own injuries or even prevent them. We get a gear recommendation from uh, all of our guests. So maybe a gear recommendation relevant to injury prevention. Yeah, so gear recommendations. So one of the big things, this is actually part of the book, is I've been a dirt, dirt bag climber uh, myself, and I know that even spending like, five, ten dollars on something other than a, a burrito and, a, you know, a, a cam is uh, is is going to break the bank or, or not be worth it. And so a big part of this book was what's called dirt bag tips. And it basically takes, you know, all this different rehab equipment and it shows you how you can remake it or use like items around the house. Uh, or items in your retired climbing gear uh, to to fashion and, and make this equipment. So uh, so maybe I'll give a couple. Yeah, give a couple examples. examples. Yeah, yeah. All right. So first one, like if you think about what's the most common like injury prevention thing someone would use would normally be some type of resistance band. And resistance bands, I mean, they're cheap. A theraband is maybe like six or seven bucks. But let's say you don't want to get one or let's say it's it's too much of a hassle and you're, you know, you're traveling and you, you don't want to go about that is you can take just some climbing webbing. You can take a single length runner 
And, and that turns into a resistance band that you can put around your wrists and bend your elbows and press out with your arms. And then maybe straighten those arms and press out a little more to, to turn on those, those external rotators in your arm. Um, you could take a, a, you know, a foam roll. Have you heard of a foam roll? It's yeah. like a, a large cylinder that's common for, climb, or common for people to roll their lower body or even to lie on it perpendicular or sorry, lie on it parallel and, and stretch in different ways. Well, if you don't have the money to get a foam roller, because those are about 30 bucks or so, uh, you just take a climbing rope. And I prefer most of the climbing gear to be retired, but you take a climbing rope and you roll a, a towel around it, huh. and then you just lie on that parallel, or you can use that to, you know, to, to kind of stretch in different ways. Um, there's a flex bar, which is a, a bar that's ribbed that um, create some tension that oftentimes people will use to strengthen their wrists. Uh, well, if you don't have that, you can take a, a, a towel, like almost like a small hand towel, uh, rolled in, uh, folded in half, almost, uh, like, um, hot dog style. Yep. Roll it up, put it under water and then just wring it out back and forth. And that can substitute for, for another device. Um, and I guess a final one for the, I'll work my way down from the shoulder, from the back to the shoulder, to the elbow, to the fingers. For the fingers, uh, there's things that you can get online, um, great devices, uh, they're power fingers or hand X trainers or different things that you put around your fingers and you extend your fingers back and forth. Those are great devices, uh, but you can also just use a rubber band and go to the the, this Jonathan Segrist, he's a, a good friend and a climber, a professional climber I work with. He actually gave me uh, this tip is go to the grocery store and, you know, buy some asparagus or broccoli. And the band that goes around the asparagus or broccoli is like the perfect tension. So anyway, those are some great gear tips um, that I'd recommend and uh, for climbing injury prevention tips that you can kind of fashion uh, different tools out of. Very good. Excellent recommendations. Final question uh, for you, Jared, is who would you like to hear next on this show? Uh, you're today's Mountain Meister. Who's the next one? Oh, you get Jonathan Segrist on here. Cool. He's, yeah. he's probably the most psyched, most passionate uh, climber or guy or person in life that I know. And he's a, always a pleasure to be around and, and he's got some great stories. Um, so he'd be a, he'd be a good one. Keep an ear out for Jonathan Segrist on a future episode of Mountain Meister, uh, theclimbingdoctor.com. Thanks so much for joining us, Jared. Absolutely. We'll have links in the show notes of this episode and, of course, on our website, mtnmeister.com. The next part of our show is called The Company Spotlight. In our company spotlights, we feature lesser-known outdoor brands, give them a chance to tell you about their products, then we try out the product for ourselves and tell you what we think. Companies are not allowed to pay to be featured on our company spotlights, and because of that, we can say whatever we want about them. Today, we welcome Thunderbolt Sportswear to the company spotlight. This is John Connor, who's a part owner of the company, which he purchased from the founder. And he's an avid backpacker and hiker, and you know, as pretty much every guy probably that you and I both know has his favorite pair of jeans hanging in his closet. And, you know, he wanted to be able to backpack in a pair of pants that were as comfortable as those jeans were. So that was the light bulb or the thunderbolt, if you will. <laughs> and, um, he ended up taking those jeans, I believe to, uh, a pattern maker and saying, I want to make these, but out of a different fabric. And, he got in touch with Scholler and selected a fabric and took it from there. Before buying the company, John bought a pair of those pants. That was back in 2007. And um, immediately took them into uh, the Wallawa mountain range and the Eagle Cap Wilderness area here in northeastern Oregon. And my buddy and I backed, backed in there. It was like a, I don't know, seven or eight mile hike, not too long. Um, stayed there for a week and did some exploratory alpine rock climbing in the area, nothing too serious. So that was, you know, my original sort of association with them was, you know, there's this pair of pants that looks like a pair of jeans, but you take them into the backcountry. And we're by no means the first people to ever think of that idea. You know, other companies had done it before then, and a lot of companies have done it since then. But um, the quality was unmistakable. I mean, Scholler 
the Scholler family of sawshell fabrics is just known the world over mm-hmm. as the original, you know, sort of founding fabrics of the softshell, you know, call it a movement if you want. Did you just bring one pair of jeans into the backcountry on that day? Yeah, I was, we were back there for six or seven days and I had that one pair of pants. You know, and I should add it, you know, it was, it's one of those, it was in September and so it's that time of the year when at night it's starting to drop down, you know. But in the daytime, it's still getting up into the 80s or 90s, and I have a pair of, you know, fuzzy back, fleecy feeling soft shell pants that takes you th- through that whole temperature gradient throughout the day, no problem at all. They're so breathable and so comfortable that you, you know, the the, the perfect piece of outdoor equipment in, in my view is something that you forget you have because mm. it works so well, and that's what happened on that trip. And I think that's happened for a lot of our customers since then. And that's why they're coming back to us. So. Well, well put. So we, uh, you took the company over a few years ago with a couple of partners. What did you change yeah. or what have you changed uh, since then? So that original pair of pants, I started to say, you know, they they fit me kind of like a pair of, I, I would call them on me. They're kind of a skinny fit. Mm-hmm. And at the time I figured, oh, that's just my build, whatever. You know, I'm still going to wear them even though I usually prefer more of a straight leg fit. And as soon as we got involved and started to read the customer feedback, we realized that there are a lot of guys out there who wanted something that fit a little bit more like um, a straight leg. We took that advice and we we brought out the Mark II, which is now our flagship product. And it's original. It's available in the original colorway, which is that black with the khaki top stitching. Mm-hmm. And then it's available in a gray and also black, what we call black top, which is black with black stitching. So. The fit is is nicely fitted in the top block. That's you know the the waist and the hip, and it's um, also pretty fitted in the upper leg. But I wouldn't call it snug. And then from there it dro- drops more or less straight to the ankle. Mm-hmm. The ankle opening is 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 wide enough to accommodate a bulky hiking shoe or uh, an approach shoe, um, but it's trim enough that it looks good with a pair of more urban oriented footwear. And we've got guys even a one of our athletes on our ambassador team works in an office Monday through Friday doing web development. And on weekends, he's up on Mount Hood almost every single weekend. And he uses these pants, I mean, like seven days a week sometimes. Yeah. So I have to be honest, the first thing that I saw when I went to your website and looked at the products was that the price, it's not cheap. Mm, yeah. $200, yeah, $200 for a pair yeah. of pants. But yeah. if you get the performance out. So how do you how do you respond to people that say that the product's just too expensive? Sure. Yeah, I, I get it. I mean, and I've been there. I mean, if you if you got 20 bucks in your pocket and need a pair of pants, I'm not judging you. I mean, go to Goodwill. They've got a great, great, you know, range of products that you can get. Um, for that matter, go on any number of the, the, uh, the blowout style websites. There's lots of options out there. For 200 bucks, you know, the value proposition is really high. I think that that's what our, our customers respond to. And I think there's a growing number of people in every category of outdoor, whether it's hunting and fishing, whether it's cycling, whether it's backpacking, climbing, skiing, whatever it might be, who appreciate the value you get with the highest quality materials made in the U.S. to exacting standards. We, we hear pretty consistently from our factories that they're really impressed with the quality of the materials. And some of them, I'll be honest, when they, they first see the shoulder stuff, they're like, I don't know if we can work with this. It's really stretchy. Hmm. But then they're coming back and they're saying, well, this stuff is amazing. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I have a friend who worked for the Park Service. His job is patrolling big walls. He's done over a dozen ascents of El Cap in a pair of our Mark IIs. And he says they're still good-looking enough that he can tuck his uniform shirt and wrap his duty belt around and go to work. If in you, uniform. If you so, uh, divide the price over the number of times that you wear the pants, they actually become yeah. a much better deal, right? I think that's I think that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. Um, you know, you're going to have them for years and years. They're going to work really well in such a wide range. I mean, versatility is one of our watchwords. We're always looking to get the widest range of use, and of course, the the longest term of use out of our products. I meant to ask you this. Um, some companies uh, can offer a promo code based on like if their website has a yeah. a spot. Can we do that on here? Yeah, yeah. We set one up. It's, oh, um, it's Mountain Meister, 
and that's going to be 25% off and that'll run for as long as we need to. Wow. That's great. Thank you. That's 50, you. $50 yeah. off a pair of jeans. If my math is correct. That's right. That's at thunderboltsportswear.com. Use the code mountainmeister, M-T-N-M-E-I-S-T-E-R for 25% off. They also have a line of tops that you can get, a windshirt, uh, a lighter pair of the Mark IIs. Now let's hear what Max and I thought of the product. Let's first talk about the price. The price, I think the pants MSRP for like, they're two hundred dollars. Yeah, they're two hundred dollars. Two hundred dollars <laughs> for a pair of pants. That seems like a lot. How do you to me. really feel bad? <laughs> yeah, but uh, I think the shirt is also like the shirt's also very expensive. So this is uh, the wind shirt that you're wearing, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now I'm I'm wearing a four hundred dollar outfit, which is not very common for me. Um, that being said, they are super high quality, so I do feel. Uh, I dude, I wore the pants the other day when it, I. I this is the most waterproof, breathable item that I've ever worn in my life. Same, hundred percent. Yeah, I was. When were you wearing them? Blown that you needed away. The waterproof breathability. I, the first time I wore them was walking to work in the pouring rain. Nice. I walked one mile, and you know how normally, like your jacket's more waterproof than your pants, so yep. the the rain like rolls off your jacket. And then, and then the, your thighs just get soaked. Exactly. This is like the opposite. My jacket couldn't sustain all the rain. And so it soaked up some of the rain and then the rest of it would like drip down onto the pants and then the pants would just like shed this water. <laughs> and I was soaking wet except for my pants when I got to work. It was incredible. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. The only time I've been in inclement situation is when you guys poured water all over my pants but right. they totally worked right right we did like a a quick test we poured a whole bottle of water over max's pants and it just yeah they shed right off it's really cool to see <laughs> um it, i'm i'm interested in how they hold up after being washed if they stay that waterproof I, i'd imagine they won't yeah. stay that waterproof so I've, obviously i washed but, my shirt uh-huh. but i haven't washed my pants yet mm-hmm um, and as far as I can tell, the shirt's still fine. Cool. Um, but, um, the what do you think of the cut of everything? The the pants are a little tighter on the thighs. I think they're more European than we're used to, or I think like the because the brand is European, they fit differently. It's not European. Um, it's out of Portland, Oregon. Jk. <laughs> um, I think because the brand is from Portland, it's a little different cut than <laughs> we're used to. <laughs> uh, it's just. Just how I feel. Um, the fabric is Euro, isn't it? Yeah. The yes, yeah, so the fabric is I think from Switzerland. I don't know. Like, I don't think I need a bigger size, but like my thighs are are pretty snug in these pants. You have a thirty in the waist. I have a thirty in the waist. Okay, yeah. I bumped up to a thirty-two. I think my waist is a touch bigger than yours, but not by much. And right. like the thirty was, I can sometimes do a thirty. The thirty-two fits me perfectly. Oh, it does? Yeah, in the thighs and everything. And then I think that they're – I can see why they did this. It's a little too straight straight leg cut for me. Like I wish it tapered just a little bit more toward the ankle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they, uh, they're they meant for like not only walking around town but also for hiking. I could totally see them like wearing them hiking. Um, yeah, so – And then rock, rock climbing that, too. Yeah, as a technical pant, they're knocking it out of the park. Yeah. Um. Like I'll definitely wear these on hikes in the summer or fall. And then, um, I actually skied in my shirt one day Mm -hmm. and it was incredible. It was really nice. It was like windproof. It was, um, it was your outer layer. What? It was your outer layer or a mid layer? It was my outermost layer. Wow. Yeah. Um, granted it was like 60 degrees in Squaw Valley, but it was like plenty windproof and, um, I, uh, I actually like lived in this shirt for two weeks in Canada. I wore it pretty much every day. Mm-hmm. Um, looks nice. Collar helps. It's technical. So, good. Um, so th- that's Thunderbolt Sportswear. Uh, again, really expensive, but really, really awesome. The fabric that they use is shoulder fabric, which is like top of the line stuff. So, yeah, ultimately, I don't think I would buy these pieces because I, I yeah just can't afford them 
Okay. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't pay two hundred dollars on pants just because I can't. I wouldn't be able to get over doing that. Uh, but if you have the money and you want a nice pair of pants, oh my God, get these. That's <laughs> a, that's how I would. That's how I'd feel. Yeah, that's that's a great way to put it yeah. for me too. Again, that's thunderboltsportswear.com. The code MOUNTAINMEISTER, M-T-N-M-E-I-S-T-E-R, will get you 25% off at checkout, which is honestly a pretty good deal. $50 off that pair of pants. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Mountain Meister. The company spotlight segment is still relatively new. Let me know what you think of it. Ben at mtnmeister.com. I'd love to hear if there's anything else that we could do with that that would better serve you. Now that the weather is getting warm, finally, I should remind you that the Mountain Meister t-shirt is pretty much everybody's favorite t-shirt. It's a really clean design. It goes with just about everything. And it's so comfortable and true fitting. You can purchase one on our website, mtnmeister.com. That's all for today's episode. Until next time, I hope you enjoy doing the rest of whatever else you do while you listen to this podcast. I'm Ben Shank. Thanks for listening to another episode. Mountain Meister.